Welcome to Periods, Poos and Pimples. My name is Jacinta and I'm the founder and nutritionist of Arenda Women's Health, an online clinic specializing in all things skin, gut and reproductive health. This podcast is for all women who have ever had some level of confusion in regards to their health. Whether you're battling with a skin condition, menstrual cycle disorder, fertility issues or gut issues and you just want to understand what is going on and what you need to do from people who know what they're talking about. In each episode, I'll be speaking with experts in the realm of women's health to give you the highest level of education that you'll need to develop a deeper connection with yourself and your body. Although this information will be super insightful, this information is not for diagnostic or treatment purposes. And please ensure you speak with your medical professional before implementing any treatment protocols. Please do keep in mind, as we may refer to research or specific pathophysiology of conditions, when we're referencing male or female, it is specific to the gender that's assigned at birth and pronouns used are specific to the individual discussed. Thank you so much for tuning in and I look forward to you joining us on this journey. In today's episode, we're joined by clinical psychologist Lydia Meem. Lydia has been working with neurodivergent individuals since 1998 and as a registered psychologist from 2002. She's a popular speaker presenting at autism conferences around the world. She provides training on neurodiversity affirming approaches for teachers of autistic students. And in today's episode, Lydia will be speaking quite a lot about women with autism and explaining the differences in terms of how to approach um, neurodivergent individuals and the whole concept around, I guess, the differences between that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Lydia. I'm so excited to have you on and to talk about this topic. I'm really excited too. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, my pleasure. So can you briefly describe to us what we mean by the word neurodivergent? Um, So it just means, so uh, we use that in relation to neurotypicals and neurotypicals are the the most common brain type and Mm -hmm. uh, anything neurodivergent is just something that um, deviates from that. So it could be autism, it could be ADHD, it could be dyslexia, um, it could be somebody with um, other types of brain wiring, so a bit of psychosis or, you know, different things. It, there's sort of still an ongoing discussion about where mental health fits in. I guess um, mm-hmm. the main types of neurodivergence that we often talk about are autism, ADHD, dyslexia, other types of learning difficulties, dyspraxia, things that people have their whole lifetime. Whereas I guess, um, and certainly like there are people who are very inclusive of all of the different, you know, brain situations people might go through. I guess when I think about neurodiversity, like some of those things like an episode of psychosis doesn't last your whole lifetime. And so um, that might be something that people might have a neurotypical brain wiring And then they go Mm. through a period of psychosis and then that goes away and that kind of stuff. So I'm not quite sure whether that completely fits in with this model, but there's still an ongoing conversation about that. Um, But, yeah, so I tend to work with autistic people and lots of people Mm -hmm. with ADHD as well Mm -hmm. and learning difficulties, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess then would you perceive it almost as like a scale? Is there almost like a spectrum of then neurodivergence and where does then autism come into that? Um, I think it like, so neurodiversity includes all the different brain styles. We have mm. people who have multiple, they're multiply divergent. So you can have someone who, for example, scores really high on a cognitive assessment, so they're really smart and they also have dyslexia 
or, you know, and so they would be multiply divergent or some of people talk about chewy, which is twice exceptional, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, and often autism and ADHD can go together, but not always. Um, and so we have some people who have sort of those two brain styles going at once. And yeah, so autism is probably the most common of the, um, neurodivergent brain styles. But I mean, a lot of people are discovering both autism and ADHD at the moment, I think. Yeah. Um, there's getting to be more and more understanding of it in the community. And so people are seeking out assessments. Absolutely. I can even see it quite a lot in my clinical practice. Like it's not the area that we work in, but we can definitely see more of an influx of clients that are aware that Mm. they might be showing particular, you know, signs or symptoms that they're like, you know, this kind of might lead me to potentially getting a diagnosis. And then that Mm. way I can manage my lifestyle or the things around me or the way that I need to do particular things to enhance that and really kind of, you know, make the most of that because there's an incredible way that you can. Yeah. And that's the main thing about getting an assessment is to understand how your brain works and then work with it rather than against it. Because often... Uh, people with ADHD, for example, have often been told, you're just lazy, you need to work harder, you need to, you know, sit down and concentrate. Just, just concentrate, yeah. Just concentrate harder. You've got a disability. <laughs> Why aren't you doing the thing, you know? Yeah, that's right. And it's yeah. really shameful and that really gets in the way of them doing all the things that they want to do and, you know, mm-hmm. so not only are they having trouble doing the things but then they're feeling guilty about doing the things and that makes it harder to do the things and um, so that's not working for them. Um, so understanding how how their brain is um, working differently with dopamine, for example, and you know that they're very attracted to things that are creative and um, and novel and and maybe not so excited about the things that are the more mundane things like doing the laundry and um, you know the things we have to do all the time <laughs> that we hate um, doing, but we have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, like some of us, like myself, I'm autistic, so I don't mind doing repetitive tasks. Not all okay, of them. Yeah. Um, there's, yeah, but like I actually find sort of zen moments in doing laundry and you know that kind of thing. I can see that it's getting done and that kind of stuff. That's but great. someone who is an ADHD, are there? They're just not getting a dopamine hit from even the idea of doing the laundry and having it done. Like it just seems like this mountain of completely impossible. Um, mm. And so, yeah, so like one of my good friends who uh, is uh, autistic and an adhd um, we've found that um, she can get laundry done if she's talking to me on the phone. She can get it done if she's listening to music. She can get it done if she's also listening yeah. to a podcast or has a YouTube video on or something like that. Um, but if she's just trying to do it on her own, then it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So often like we use things like body doubling to make the job more interesting. So the laundry is not going to get more interesting on its own. You have to kind of spice it up with something else to get yeah. those brain chemicals firing. Yeah. yeah. I feel like I've heard that type of technique before with some of my friends that have ADHD in terms of like they might not be able to sit down and study and concentrate because it's not stimulating enough yeah. like, to get that dopamine, but then they have to put on some headphones, block out the sound, have some really like high intense music on that's going to be able to stimulate yeah. their dopamine and they yeah. will instantly be able to yeah. focus and get that so task done. I have a, I've got several neurodivergent psychologists in my team. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so one of my psychologists is uh, an ADHD, and so she'll be writing a report with a familiar YouTube playing in the background on her laptop, which would drive me insane. Like I yeah. couldn't do that. That would be way too distracting for me. For me, I need to be able to focus and get in the zone and mm-hmm. I get in this really beautiful flow state because I'm autistic, I can like sit there for three hours and do the thing if nobody disturbs me, whereas she needs to have something else going. And so it's none of those are incorrect. It's just understanding yourself and what works for you. Yes. And I think that's great. So I know at this, you know, before we join into the podcast today, we were talking about how you often find that there's many signs of ASD in women specifically, mm-hmm. but they're not always particularly aware of maybe these signs and symptoms to be able to th- go and get a diagnosis or to find those techniques that are going to be beneficial yeah. to enhance the things that they need to do. So are you able to explain to us uh, some of the signs that women specifically should be looking out for? And maybe also a bit about what you've actually seen throughout the course of the last, you know, 20 or so years because you've been in, you've been, you've been <laughs> yeah, doing yeah. it since, well, in, since the yeah. end of 1990. Yeah, yeah. So early on, like our focus used to be on kids and it was so funny because people would say, oh, I was talking to the parents and, you know, they're really anxious or, you know, they they need everything in writing. I can't just tell them stuff. They need to have a visual. I'm like, hmm. So, so over, <laughs> over time, we've discovered that uh, autism particularly is genetic. A lot of it is genetic. And so when you're working with autistic kids, often you're working with autistic families, so autism prolix in families, including my own. And, um, and so often uh, women are coming to me after their kids have been diagnosed. And, and I guess, like, so first of all, we want to, uh, when we're talking about autism, we just say autism and not ASD because the mm-hmm. D is a disorder. They're trying mm-hmm. to move away from that idea of being wrong and broken and those things. We have to write it down in reports so that people can get funding. But in uh, general, okay. we just talk about autism, if that makes it. sense. Yeah. Yes, There's definitely. not a great other name for um, ADHD. I have seen other psychologists calling it like spicy brain. Um, I don't think that will help to get any funding writing that No, down. there's unfortunately <laughs> no funding attached to having a spicy brain. But I think it's yeah. a good, you know, it's kind of cute. Like it, it like helps it. to explain it's... what's going on. And it's just, um, yeah. And so there's also within the autistic community, there's a move away from this mild, moderate, severe, which again is like really medicalized language. Um, mm. so within the autistic community, you're either in the club or you're not, so you're autistic or you're not. But I've seen memes where people are like, you know, pick your flavor. Do you want like mild autism, wasabi autism, you know, like chocolate ripple autism? People kind of trying to, you know, reclaim that space and, you know, yeah. have a bit of fun with it. So, yeah. yeah so I guess I'm, I think that's, yeah, it's good to remove not so much a stigma, but you know, sometimes when there's almost like this big formal diagnosis that technically when you look at the textbook, it's got all of these different types of things and you're like, oh, mm. well, that's the category that I finish. Like it doesn't mm. have to be a category. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. it's also about like, unfortunately, the the diagnostic criteria is very deficit focused. Mm. 
And so there has been um, someone who's made like an alternate diagnostic criteria, which is explaining how great all of these things are. So, for example, one of the things in autism is having like repetitive behaviour. So just doing things consistently and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so I guess the stereotypes around those things are flapping and rocking and um, swaying back and forth and those kinds of things, pacing up and down, jumping up and down, spinning in circles, that kind of stuff. So, you know, those things are the things that are often picked up first because they're quite mm-hmm. big movements. It's easy to see them, that kind of thing. But repetitive behaviours don't have to be that. For me... Um, I do repetitive craft. So I make massive crocheted blankets. It's very repetitive. That's so great though. (laughs) And it's really calming for me and I can see that I'm making this lovely blanket. You know, people enjoy being under the blanket. That's so fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and it's something, especially working as a psychologist where we're, you know, working with ideas and people and stuff, we don't always have a tangible, I did this thing being able to make these massive blankets. So I had a COVID blanket that I'm looking at on the lounge over there and um, I, I decided I was just going to keep crocheting until the lockdown was over and so it got very big. But oh, um, wow. <laughs> but now it, it covers me and my teenage children on the lounge. <laughs> I love that. Are you, are you based in Melbourne? No, I'm in Newcastle. Yeah, ah, Newcastle. okay. There still would have been a... A yeah, fair decent amount of time in lockdown. <laughs> we had a couple, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, but I mean, part of part of autism is about being able to really focus in on one thing at a time and mm-hmm. dive deeply into that. So when we're having conversations, we tend to want to jump into those deep conversations and have lots of detail. Not do the small talk stuff. Like small talk can be a bit painful to try and mm. make up random stuff to talk about. Um, as someone was saying, like small talk is when a topic has not been selected. Um, and so like exactly. you're kind of trying to figure out what are we talking about here? You know? Yeah. And so yeah. like often when you get autistic people together, we'll just skip that and go straight to special interest talk, especially if we share special interests. So we tend to make friends through our special interests so that we have that thing in common and we can dive into it and mm-hmm. really enjoy that. talking about it in detail. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it can also turn up as like doing amazing amounts of internet research on your favourite thing, having lots, a big, you know, Pinterest collection or, you know, all different ways of doing things. Um, mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to look odd. You just happen to be an expert on this particular thing. And so uh, that's okay. Like I guess what I say to families is we need GPs who know a bit about everything and we need specialists who know a lot about something. Like yeah. we need all the different kinds of minds. So mm-hmm. that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and I guess yeah. really when it, when we just come down to it, it's just a way to express joy. Mm, really. There's and lots I guess of joy every- to be had in that. Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. So are there any other signs that women specifically should be looking out for just in different age groups? Like do things present differently, Yeah, um, I guess, in different age groups because I guess whether it's like responsibilities change, which means a behaviour might change. Like I'm not, mm. I don't know much about this topic, so I'm quite interested yeah, to yeah. see how it changes. Yeah, so often if we think about like the reasons why girls and women are often not picked up, often people are thinking, oh, yeah, I've noticed this thing, but it's something else. So often we 
younger girls, it's, oh, they're just shy or they're just a bit anxious or mm. they're very particular about it needs to be a certain way or those kinds of things. You know, they're a bit bossy in the playground because they have a particular way in mind of how they want to play, usually to do with their special interests and they need everyone to follow those roles mm-hmm. and not be great at negotiating. Um, but also I think one of the reasons why girls and women are not picked up early is because girls will often study like so a lot <laughs> there's a lot of neurodivergent psychologists and we've come to it because we've been studying people our whole lives trying to figure out how to do the social thing and so uh yeah so you know most of the people that I see like they can come in and tell me okay so you know this is the social structure of the playground. There's this group and this group and this group and this is the leader of this group and they do this and they say this and they wear this and blah. And, you know, this is the catchphrase for that group and then this is this other oh, group and blah, blah, blah. I know the ins and outs of the social Yeah, dynamics. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it might look like they're just wandering around the playground because they haven't quite found a group that they fit with or, or they might mm. float between groups or, you know, or they might be working so hard to be in a group but still feel like they're on the outside of the group. Um, Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and so all of that takes a lot of effort and it's quite exhausting. And so we see a lot of girls who hold it together at school and let it out at home. So they'll have a big meltdown before they get to school, like they need to have their hair just so and they need to pack their bag exactly Mm. so and all this kind of thing. It's a big deal to get there and, you know, what happens if, the people, you know, if they can't find the line for assembly and, you know, mm-hmm. somebody's put their bag in the spot they were going to put it in or, you know, all these things, like it's so much work. And then they they are on their best behaviour, trying to follow the rules exactly for six hours and then they're exhausted and they'll get home and strip off all the clothes and <laughs> or, you know, go and, go and reorder their LOL dolls and have them all lined yeah. up beautifully or, um, you know, sort out all the buttons in the house or, or you know, they might need to do some gymnastics or trampolining or something mm-hmm. um, to be able to sort of move through that. But, yeah, like often school is not seeing the autism. They see someone who's working really hard to do all the things and follow the rules and make sure that they're a good student and all of that stuff. And it might not be until you take them out of that environment and put them on an excursion or if they go on camp or something like that where you can't sustain it the whole time, that then school goes, oh, I see what you mean. (laughs) So, um, yeah. And then, like, when the girls get to high school, often, like, they've spent you know lots and lots of time in primary school working out exactly how the system works and these are the routines for all the different things and this is how we do library and assembly and sport and everything and then high school I mean everybody gets thrown by having lots of teachers and having to move around a lot and that kind of thing but it really throws autistic students and so and then having often there's that melting pot of all the primary schools and having to redo all the social groups in year mm-hmm. seven and so I see a lot of girls who are really exhausted get anxious and depressed in year seven or eight and start being really reluctant to go to school sometimes school refusing that kind of thing and it's really kind of signs of autistic burnout mm-hmm. so I wasn't doing that when I was in high school but I definitely used to get the chronic fatigue type 
symptoms. You know, I just be fatigued a lot and that kind of stuff. So is that just because of the change? There's a lot of change, yeah. And often as you're getting older, those social demands are increasing. And so you mm-hmm. might have been able to cope with keeping track of, you know, what you're supposed to talk about and which jokes are funny and all of that stuff in primary school. But then it gets exponentially more complicated in high school. Yes. And people are really bitchy. Oh, absolutely. I feel like year seven to year nine is almost just oh. like a little bit of a write-off. <laughs> You're just like, you know, people are getting their period at different stages. Yeah, early, yeah. Later. absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. when I was a school counsellor, year nine girls, so year five girls and year nine girls, like there's that hormonal craziness. And, um, yeah, there's often the big shift. In the, in the friendship groups and things around those times. And so I'd often get a group of girls, something would be falling apart. So I'd get a big box of chocolates and sit them down and get them to work it out. <laughs> but, you know, um, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. And so, yeah, so if, if people have made it through all of that time, often they might have gotten um, been assessed for having um, anxiety or depression or things like that, but haven't been picked up with autism. And um, and that can be because their repetitive behaviours might be doing ballet stretches in the playground or um, their special interest is the same boy band that the other girls are into, um, but they're spending a lot more time on it. And, you know, diff- like so it, it looks similar to what everybody else is doing. They're just doing it in a more of a, an autistic flavour. Okay. Um, and then as adults, there's, I guess, new new challenges around around that so often um women are you know going into careers around their special interests and so like for me I've set up my whole practice around my special interest of autism and Uh so I function really well in that environment because I know all the things yes (laughs) Um, you're an expert in that yeah yeah Yeah. (laughs) so that looks fine (laughs) (laughs) and I guess this is where like you know we were kind of talking at, at before we got onto the podcast about just mm-hmm. like giving yourself permission to live as you are and yeah. not really needing to change yourself to fit a particular norm. Like for yourself, yeah. you're like, well, I'm going to specialise in this. This is my area. I know the ins and outs of it, so I'm going to do yeah. it extremely well. But why conform to something that doesn't align with that? Yeah, and I to? think often in the past our focus for intervention had always been on the things that people were not good at. So trying mm. to improve those areas where they maybe were not doing the same things as everybody else so that they could fit in better. But really what we want to do is encourage them in their areas of passion, in their areas of special interest, because that's where they're going to find friends, that's where they're going to find well-being and happiness and, um, and you know, study opportunities and work and all of those things. So, mm. um, you know, like not worrying so much about the other stuff. And I guess uh, with the neurodiversity affirming stuff, it's also about the autistic person doesn't have to be responsible for all of the communication breakdowns that occur. So we know that autistic people actually communicate really well with each other because we have shared mm understandings, expectations, assumptions, those kinds of things. Neurotypicals tend to communicate really well with each other because you often share those things. But it's when you have a neurotypical person and an autistic person trying to communicate that there's this cross-wiring happening. And so because, you know, people are thinking, oh, well, you know, he didn't have a, a particular facial expression that I would expect 
for that situation and so mm-hmm. you must be weird I don't understand you you know and someone else is like I don't know why you were pulling faces while we were just having a conversation um and you know and so or you know or they might have just been really focused on the words so often neurotypicals will say one thing and mean something else whereas autistic mm-hmm. people often will say what they mean and mean what they say um mm-hmm. and so yeah, and so you're supposed to know that the neurotypical person is joking because they have this twinkle in their eye or because, you know, they've got a little smile or something like that. But if you're someone who focuses on the words and takes things literally, then it is going to be really confusing when someone says one thing and does something else. And and so the responsibility needs to be shared between neurotypical people and um, neurodivergent people to try and mm-hmm. work on having this shared communication and um and you know both kind of understanding each other so we used to for example do social skills training for autistic people to help them Mm -hmm. to go under the radar and fit in um whereas now that's seen as a bit gross um so even if somebody wants to learn social skills we would say well let's take it from a cultural perspective of you know this is how neurotypical people tend to approach things this is how autistic people tend to approach things nobody's right or wrong it's just different ways of doing things it's just the differences mm-hmm. yeah yeah and so especially for families that can be really helpful so if you have neurotypical people and neurodivergent people in the family understanding okay well when you say this thing it means this to you but it actually comes across as this to this other person and so trying to you know work on um not making assumptions and checking in with each other about, you know, okay, I, I think what you said was this, is that right? And, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, so then yeah. do you have any specific tips or guidance for neurotypical people who have either, you know, family, friends or coworkers that are neurodivergent and how they can try to best support them? Are there specific techniques or tips that you often recommend? Yeah. So firstly, like not shaming them about the special interests. So often people Mm -hmm. will complain. If they don't know, you know, better, they might complain, oh, this person's always talking about this thing. And, you know, and they might be like, oh, I was trying to tell them about this thing and they kept interrupting me with their special interests. And and so sometimes that's uh, a thing of they, the autistic person is wanting to connect with you. And so the way that they're trying to do that is go, oh, yes, that happened to me. And their mm-hmm. example will be coming from the angle of their special interests, of course. Um, but, you know, they're trying to connect with you. And so seeing that as a bid to connect, not just a random change of subject. Mm-hmm. Um, and because when they think about their special interests, that makes everything more wildly exciting and wonderful they might assume that it's then more wildly exciting and wonderful for everyone. (laughs) And so they're trying to, you know, spice up the conversation by bringing that in. And so they're they're trying to help. Um, And so They're trying to connect. Yeah, Yeah, they're trying to connect. And so it's not that they don't want to connect and they're just in their own world and they only want to talk about this thing. It's actually, no, no, this is a gift that they're giving you that they're they're trying to include you in that world mm. and trying to let you know about this cool thing that happened. Um, and so, yeah, so so that can take some of the pressure off as well. And and so um, if people, are, you know, have, say, children who are autistic, then spending time watching their favourite YouTube videos with them and 
um, and getting them to tell you about how amazing they are and what it is that they like about them and that kind of stuff. That can help with connection rather than saying, oh, you spend too much time on screens, you need to mm. put that away all the time. Yeah, because often if you spend that time building up that relationship around the special interest, then they're more willing to go with you on the stuff that's interesting to you as well. So it yes, because they probably like, feel seen and feel heard. Yeah, and they yeah. Feel so safe, it's all about- like it's a safe environment for them to be able to express their interests if they've, you know, up until that point, if they've had people that have questioned it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so um, we're also moving away from like using interests as rewards. So uh, mm-hmm. we used to do that a lot of like, oh, well, you know, these kids at school are not really motivated about the thing that you want to teach them. So we'll get them to do some work and then they can have their favourite thing. And the feedback that we have from adults who've been through that system is that that sort of sucks all of the life out of the thing that they really like because they have to keep doing this thing they don't like to be able to get the thing they like. And then after a while they're like, forget it, I don't want that thing. Um, (laughs) so cruel. It is. It's like withholding your favourite thing, you know. It's it's a mean thing to do. So so what we we're moving towards now is like having people's special interests in the space. So, you, you know, a teacher might have a wall on the back of the classroom with everybody's special interests um, mm-hmm. where everybody can, you know, have a picture of their favourite Pokemon or whoever it is. And um, and so that's always there and it makes it a safe classroom, um, you know, where it's okay to talk about interests. And so the teacher can just say, oh, you know, did you play Pokemon on the weekend or whatever? Um, but you know, they're not they're not making the Pokemon talk contingent on you have to do this thing for me, if that makes sense. Mm. So they're just showing that they care about this person by asking them about their interests and then saying, Oh, I'd really like it if you could do this thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in relation to then women specifically, is there mm. a spe- is there something that you would often recommend for people to I guess their first steps in actually obtaining a diagnosis if mm-hmm. they're feeling like they might be presenting with some of the signs or symptoms what kind of um what kind of is it like forms of testing or what is the actual steps yeah, that they would need yeah so they could see um they could see a psychologist or they could see a psychiatrist um often often you would see a psychologist and i would suggest especially for um women um to see a psychologist who can do the mictus with them so that's a particular assessment that's more neurodiversity affirming and it's also more sensory based so it goes through and asks all these questions about do you have particular tastes or smells or sights or sounds or um, textures that um, you really like or you really don't like because a lot of the autistic experience is about having um, hypersensitivity to certain um, sensory experiences or, or undersensitivity to certain experiences and that can make a huge difference to the way we perceive the world and and that kind of stuff so often like with women i guess for the practitioners that you're seeing that you know are listening they might think oh this person says they're vegetarian but they eat these particular only certain types of meat (laughs) but it's to do with the texture for example Uh, so yeah So I'm vegetarian-ish, pescatarian, but it's because I can't handle chewing meat and the Mm -hmm. taste of meat. So the idea of eating vegetarian food that tastes like meat, like why bother? But um, but (laughs) but um, but I can eat certain certain meat um, because Mm -hmm. I've decided that those textures are okay. But 
you know, things that you think, no, that's pretty similar. It's not. <laughs> yeah. So it's like it's, it's less ethical based. Yeah, it's less ethical based in that moment. It's not a philosophical and it's thing. It's no. not that I'm no. Um <laughs> it's just the texture. <laughs> and so for example, like I I was low in nine, so I thought oh, I need to eat more meat. So I got myself a yeah. slow cooker because I didn't mm-hmm. want to have to chew the meat. And then I made lots of curry because then I could disguise the taste of the meat. And so then I can eat it, but I don't want to eat like roast that you have to taste meat, mm-hmm. you know, that just, kind of thing. So if you have people who are having really, those kinds of experiences, yeah. Yeah, okay, that's really that's a really good point to note. So then I guess in terms of then the once they do have the diagnosis, is there some kind of steps that then follow from that? Mm, yeah, so a lot of women that I see, um, they might go through the assessment process and that's really about asking, so do you have differences in your social communication um, in need for sameness and routine, in sensory and repetitive behaviour type stuff? And is that the best explanation for what's going on? Because there are other things that can look like autism but, but aren't. Um, so sometimes trauma or other things can kind of uh, look like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so kind of getting the story, working out, yep, autism seems to fit for you. And then then it's about kind of understanding that brain style and also maybe finding some sensory strategies. So sometimes people will go and see an occupational therapist to have a sensory profile and work out what mm-hmm. kinds of things might work for them. So I have like loop earplugs to help with sound. I'm also constantly turning the television down when my kids are trying to watch television and you know that kind mm-hmm. of thing, but then I need it up for me. I have like weighted blankets. Yeah, like there's lots of like sensory things and I have my little rituals like I um, I'm trying to break this ritual of always washing my hair but up until fairly recently probably the last six months I would wash my hair every single day that was how I had mm-hmm. to start the day and so my mm-hmm. hair was always quite dry <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but yeah it just didn't feel right to start the day without mm-hmm. you know without yeah. washing my hair and those kinds of like more subtle things if if you didn't tell people about them they might not know that you know that's a thing for you like my kids always joke about you know I have to pack the dishwasher a very particular way so I'm saying could you put your stuff in the dishwasher and like you're just gonna move um um because (laughs) I have have my particular style of Tetris with dishwasher and you know yeah so now I've given up on that and I'm just trying to get them to unpack the dishwasher but yeah, yeah like we all have our little rituals and things like that like I've always been a color sorter so when I was about seven, um, I had these silk flowers and I used to lay them out on the pavers and, I, and I've got a photo of this with like, you know, piles of rocks and things that I'd lined uh-huh. up very specifically. And my mum was like, oh, you're being a farmer. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm just laying them out in colours. I'm just, like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just, just really enjoying things, yeah. the look of this rainbow and I've always had a yeah. thing for rainbows. And so now like in celebration of my... Autism assessment, um, I have rainbow shoelaces again. So I always used to wear rainbows like when I was a kid and now I'm like, well, I still really like rainbows. I'm just going to have them back in my life. And so 
you know, like I'm kind of letting myself enjoy those things again. And if I have a big day at work, then I'm like, okay, I need to watch my archaeology videos. (laughs) (laughs) And and that's incredible. It's just, honestly, it's just self-awareness. And there's, there's, there's so many, you know, even just like, you know, neurotypical individuals that might not even have that same level of self-awareness to be like, what do I actually want and need to make me feel safe and to make me feel comfortable? Yeah. Um, so I think that's just so good to be able to, like, it's just a matter of knowing what it is that's mm. going to make you, f- going to align with, I guess, making you feel safe. Yeah. 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 And I think yeah. that the importance of getting the diagnosis, I guess, I want to highlight that in the sense, because even some, so many of those things that you just mentioned in terms of like, you know, stacking the dishwasher a particular way, um, you know, having things coordinated, as you mm-hmm. were saying, all these examples, I could think of so many people that I know that have all of these, but then it's like, how would you differentiate if they didn't have other signs or symptoms to actually, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And that's what the identify. thing is about having the assessment is kind of working yes. out, are there enough of these things? Like if you had a list that's of right. 100 things, that are associated with autism. Everyone's going to have maybe a couple of those things. Exactly. But, you know, you need to have lots of those things yep. to meet the criteria. Yeah. And that not and, every and case, I guess, would present the same either. No, you can have, two, you know, so there's an expression, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one autistic person. So that mm-hmm. the person with autism, autistic thing, we're trying to move away from person with autism towards uh, using autistic person kind of language because that's Mm -hmm. identity first language. So it's celebrating the autism. And Mm -hmm. um, so when I started in autism, we were told never say autistic, always say person with autism, student with autism, woman with autism. And that was about recognising they're a person first and they happen to have this thing. And so, and that was a push away from the medical model, which was, if you go into an emergency department, often you'll hear, oh, yep, there's a broken leg in bed six and there's an appendix Mm. in bed 13, you know, that kind of thing. And so it's kind of like saying the only thing that you need to know about this person is this one thing. And so so then the push was, you know, hey, we're a person and, you know, and we happen to have this thing. But, you know, that's been around for a long time now and people are like, yes, I know I'm a person, but the autism is actually a core part of who I am and I want to celebrate that. And so now there's like the autistic women's network and things like that where mm-hmm. um, we're putting the autism up front and, yeah, and so I guess when people are looking for resources, if you look for those um, resources that are using the identity-first language rather than the person-first mm-hmm. language, it's a quick way of checking how up-to-date the resources are. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. So before no. we finish up, are you actually able to give us some examples around specific language that should be used that you're often then either finding that needs to be corrected when you're either, you know, speaking mm. to someone or reading something or researching? Mm. Are there some specific examples even for myself, for my team, for the listeners and everyone? So yeah, yeah. Get, it, get it right. Yeah. So I think the main thing is like even I've, tend to focus more on like talking about having an autism assessment rather than getting a diagnosis because the diagnosis okay. is really medicalized language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, and I would say they meet criteria for, you know, for autism. Um, and in my report I have to, you know, state autism spectrum disorder and the level and all of that kind of thing. Otherwise they won't get funding through NDIS. Mm. But 
not everybody wants funding, not everybody needs that. But, you know, for people who do, it's really important that we write in that way so that they can get the support and accommodations that Mm. they need. Um, So that that is important. But we would do that, like, in a very strategic place in the report and the rest of the time we're using the neurodiversity affirming kind of language and and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, so moving away from saying things like ASD, autism spectrum disorder, and talking just more about autism and or, you know autistic people, autistic mm-hmm. women. There's also, I guess, a push away from interventions around social skills training and that kind of stuff. Thinking so when we see that, uh, that's that's a bit of a no-no. Also, ABA, which is Applied Behaviour Analysis, it's a very old intervention. And um, very popular in America, but also there is some in Australia. And that's um, unfortunately still focused on trying to get people to look not autistic. Um, mm. And and so that's kind of how they measure their success is, you know, supposedly people can lose their uh, autisticness um, if they do this thing right. And so there's actually a huge number of adults in the autistic community have come out and said that 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 type of intervention was actually traumatic for them. And what happens is they they learn to comply with the the treatment and look, do the things that they're expected to do so that the person will stop um, rather than that that's an internalised thing. Um, and and they you know and it causes lots of anxiety and depression and things like that. So we don't want to go mm. anywhere near that. It's more about accepting your own brain style, understanding your brain style, how your brain works, and then working with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, even just that example you gave um, previously about you know a child at school then trying to suppress mm. some things throughout the course of the day, and then they get home, and then it all. It all comes, comes out. out because of, yeah. and you know, if those if those programs that are specifically around trying to change behavioural patterns to try mm. to mimic someone else, that's mm. just a form of suppression. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And often, what was happening was people would be, you know, in that suppression mode all day at school, and then in the afternoon, oh, now it's time for therapy, oh. and off they would go to do more learning how to mask. You know, and so, um, yeah, so we, I, a lot of the time we want to move away from that idea. So we might, you know, especially like for ADHDers, their therapy might be going trampolining or doing parkour or, you know, doing things that are going to help them to get their energy out so that they can sit or, you know, finding things that they really enjoy doing um, and that they're good at and doing that, which is kind of what we like to do as humans anyway. Yeah. You know, so it's exactly. not rocket science. No, it's, no, it's like just give people this, just give everyone the space that they need to do to express yeah. themselves in a way. Yeah. And yeah. And to yeah. like, uh, I think that's, that's a really good summary of how you just said it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so if there was any specific resources, um, such as like websites or anything that our listeners can go to to try and find out more about the work that you mm-hmm. do, is mm-hmm. um, where can we head? send them to yeah so my practice is called autism understanding um probably the thing that you might be interested in on there is there's a um a webinar that i've done a two-hour thing talking about neurodiversity and practice um Mm -hmm. and that goes through all the language changes and the reasons why we don't say asperger's and all of those sorts of things so that's on there and then there's things like reframing autism which is Mm -hmm. um about 
you know, changing the way that we think about autism and, and more of that neurodiversity firm practice. Another thing I would suggest is following autistic people on Instagram. So there's lots of really amazing um, autistic uh, Instagram people who are talking about their autism or their ADHD. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's really good to go to the source and um, find out what people's experience is rather than having a neurotypical expert tell you how it is. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, like it's different to have kind of learned it in books um, yeah. than to have lived experience. And so we want to listen to those who have lived experience. Yeah. Yes. And I think, you know, this is probably a little bit off topic and I'm not too sure your opinion on the show, but I watched Love on the Spectrum. And oh, yeah. I, I personally haven't had anyone immediate in my life that is neurodivergent. So mm. I think even just watching that, it was, I'm sure there's so many other different, like, you know, people that will present completely differently as well. Yeah. But it was also just nice to watch because I haven't had mm-hmm. any neurodivergent yeah. people around me. And I was like, that's mm-hmm. actually nice to give me a base, very base level understanding of just interaction and support and even Mm. just some of the like seeing the family dynamics of some of them and how they like you said like would really embrace their interests or how Mm. they would navigate particular conversations it was just it was so nice that it was all like from my perspective kind of seemed a little bit about trying to embrace some of those you know the way that they I guess the way that they want to present themselves or their behaviors and patterns yeah yeah I think that's you know and that takes a lot of pressure off families as well if they're not Mm. trying to make their kids look the same as everybody else if they can just embrace well this is going to be a quirky family and that's okay um (laughs) yeah I mean my kids are neurodivergent as well and and so yeah, I mean, we all eat different foods for dinner and that kind of stuff. Like, it doesn't mean that we don't care. Um, and yeah. it's just that we have different sensory sensitivities and different food preferences. And so it's more about, you know, connecting around being with each other. We don't have to show that by all eating the same foods, you know, and each family is going to be different in the way that they handle those things. But I guess mm-hmm. um, some of the things that we're taught is, you know, this is how you have to be a parent or this is how you have to you know, be a partner, we can reassess those things and see if they're working for us in in our relationships. And if they're not, we can try something else and see if that works better. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on today. It's been so great to be able to learn so much about this. And I'll pop all your information in the show notes for people to go um, and find the webinars and everything that you've educated on. So thanks so much for today. No worries. Thank you.